Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, you know what you might want to do next time you meet somebody? And, you know, I, I, we, there, it's routine when we meet and greet, we call it. You know, we shake hands, God bless, how are you doing? Ask somebody their name that you don't know. Remember it in your head or write it down. And then remember this week to pray for that person. And just see what the Lord brings to your mind as you do that. It could be a lot of fun. Well, tonight, let's turn in our Old Testaments to meet another minor prophet in the major league. A man by the name of Amos. Famous Amos. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have in the middle of our week. Though some of us have concerns and many commitments, lots of busyness, thank you that we can carve aside this hour, this hour and 30 minutes to reflect, to remember, to be reminded of who you are and who we are in Christ and what that relationship entails and how privileged we are to be your children, to have you as our God, not an idol, not a false God, but the true and the living only God who reigns from heaven and is sovereign over all that goes on on this earth, including in our lives. Lord, as we consider this prophet tonight, I pray that we would learn, our minds would be engaged, our hearts would be tender, and our obedience would follow and be all yours. Lord, you know what we need We know what we want. We pray, Father, you'd give to us what you know that we need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It was in 1957 when a man by the name of Wally Amos decided with great enthusiasm to make his cookie business grow. And it became Famous Amos. Well, there is a more famous Amos than Famous Amos. And that's this one that's in the Bible. Because he's in the Bible. Automatically, that puts his fame at an all-time high. But he's not known by a lot of people. More people probably know Famous Amos the Cookie Maker than Famous Amos the Shepherd from Tekoa. That's what he was. He was a shepherd. He really wasn't a prophet at all. He was a shepherd in so small a town that if you'd blink, you'd miss it on horseback. I mean, it was just a wide spot in the road about 12 miles southeast of Jerusalem, down around, oh, six miles from Bethlehem. He was, in the words of J. Vernon McGee, a country preacher who came to town. That's right. He was a guy who lived out in the country. He was not a professional. And we'll read that in chapter 7 when he introduces himself to his audience. And he says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. 
But I was a sheep herder from Tekoa. Tekoa, just a little rocky, hilly spot, as I said, about six miles from Bethlehem, on a ridge overlooking the wilderness toward the Dead Sea. He said that he tended sheep and he tended sycamore fruit. Sycamore fruit is a a fig-like tree in Israel that grows between 25 and 50 feet high and has a a fig-like fruit that bears fruit three to four times a year. But God called this non-professional shepherd to bring a message to his people. Now remember, we're dealing with the minor prophets. So we know that when we speak of Israel, we're speaking of what? The ten northern tribes, not the entire country. The nation is now divided into two. There is Judah in the south, that's the two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and the ten northern tribes we call Israel. His message is to Israel. He's from a town in Judah, but he travels up to the center portion to Bethel, where the tabernacle once stood. And he preaches to a crowd a very, well, a popular message at first, but an unpopular message at the last, as we'll see tonight. So he's a country preacher who has come to town, a man from Tekoa who brings this message to Israel. The prophet Hosea, you remember him a couple books back, and the prophet, famous Amos, preached to the same crowd. If you remember, Hosea also spoke spoke to the ten northern tribes, and now Amos does as well. In fact, around the same time, they overlapped. But their style is very different. We know that Hosea was this loving prophet who used his own life experience where he loved a woman who was unfaithful to him and forgave this woman who was a prostitute He spoke out of a heart of love to the people, and he spoke of God's love in the midst of judgment. Whereas Hosea spoke from his heart, Amos is in your face. And whereas Hosea's emphasis was the love of God in the midst of judgment, Amos's emphasis is the majesty of God and his unrelenting holiness. You notice that tonight... We opened up with a call to worship, speaking about the holy character of God. Our song service was filled with reminders of God's holiness. That's because that's the theme of this man's ministry. And so he will speak about a holy God judging unholy people. And his emphasis is going to be on judgment. I was speaking with a friend of mine uh, this week. He lives out in California. And he was telling me about a son who was recently arrested. And he was arrested uh, over uh, an issue of um, a violent nature. He was arrested and he was sent to jail for a temporary period of time because uh, he had an outburst of anger that resulted in a a physical altercation. Notice how I'm, I'm trying to say it very nicely. The guy got rough with his girlfriend. He was put in jail. 
But before that, he was taken to the judge, and my friend said, it was so ominous, Skip, to be in that courtroom and hear the charges. The judge would say, the first charge is this, and he'd read it. And then he'd say, do you understand this charge? Yes, Your Honor. How do you plead? Guilty. And the judge would say, you are guilty as charged. And then he'd read another charge. You're charged for this. Do you understand that charge? Yes, Your Honor. How do you plead? Guilty. You are guilty as charged. And he said, with each pronouncement, it felt like one weight added to another weight, added to another weight, added to yet another, like you were crushed under the weight of guilt. Amos, like that judge, one upon another. But it's not that he's listing several sins to one party, but he's addressing several parties, several nations. In fact, tonight, and I'm going to say it, God willing, because I don't know if we're going to make it through two chapters, but we're going to try. If we don't, so what? We always, you know, we always have the next week until Jesus returns. So we'll go through a portion. But in chapter 1 and 2, the theme is the roaring of judgment. The roaring of judgment. The Lord roars from Zion. Chapters 3 and 4 are the reasons for judgment. Chapter 5 and 6, the reasonableness of the judge. We'll get on into the rest of the book as we go. But in chapters 1 and 2, what Amos does is he names eight parties that are under the judgment of God. Eight nations. And he's quite clever. It's all by the design of the Holy Spirit. He's going to end up speaking directly to Israel. But he won't begin there. He's going to begin with a good message of judging Israel's enemies. So that the crowd in Bethel would go, I like this guy. There would be a bond. He's preaching the kind of message they want to hear. God's after our enemies. Hallelujah. And, and like, a, like a clever marksman, he's going to draw a bullseye. And he's going to start with a wide sweep, naming other nations around Israel. And then getting a little bit closer. And then a little bit closer. And finally, nail Israel right in the center. So he's going to get them nodding. Oh yeah, I like this guy. He's awesome. Then he's going to make them squirm a little bit. Then, no doubt, they're going to get downright angry because their hearts have become hardened. Now here's the setting. The setting is mentioned in the first two verses. Because of the kings that are mentioned, we know the era. It's a period of time when Israel outwardly is doing great. There is more luxury in Israel than ever before. It's post-Solomon. The kingdom is divided, but there's great wealth, there's more luxury, but there's moral laxity. And I don't know if you've discovered it, but history will prove that when you have more luxury, you end up with moral laxity. People become lax to the commandments of God, the reality of God. They have so much abundance. They don't even have to pray anymore. They don't cry out to God anymore. In fact, they'll start attributing the blessings of God to their own devices, their own genius. 
or to false gods. That's what's happening. The borders have been expanded by this time. Thankfully, Israel's happy because that big superpower, Assyria, you will remember from previous minor prophet studies, Assyria has taken out and defeated the northern power of Syria. There is Assyria, and then there is Syria. Assyria has defeated Syria, which enables Israel to occupy more land to the north. Their borders are spread out. They're in prosperity. They have their heart's desires. But there's moral laxity and they have forgotten God. So, the words of Amos, his name means burdened, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now we think the earthquake occurred in 640 B.C. We're not sure, but that that was a notable earthquake. Interesting that Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there was a major earthquake that was a response from God to the sin of one of the kings that are mentioned in verse 1, King Uzziah. Do you remember the story in Second Chronicles? We're there in chapter, I think, 26. It says, When Uzziah grew strong, he lifted up his heart to his own destruction, and he went into the temple of his God and burned incense on the altar of incense. In other words, he was not a priest. He was not of the priestly family. But he thought, well, I'm, I'm king. And as king... There are no moral constraints for me. Technically, I'm the leader of the nation. I can do whatever I want. And he intruded into the priestly office and he burned incense as only a priest can do. We know that God judged him. He became a leper. His his, uh, body became leprous. He became diseased. But Josephus tells us that there was a response of God and that was that of an earthquake. So that could be the reference here. And he said, now here's the theme that is stated, The Lord roars from Zion. Where is Zion? Jerusalem. I heard somebody say, you got it right. Got an A on the test. That's down south. Mount Zion is where Jerusalem is founded upon, built upon. The Lord roars from Zion. Now, he's preaching his message in the north, in Bethel, but he says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, his included, and the top of Carmel withers. Now, Carmel is in the north. Jerusalem, Zion is in the south. Carmel is in the north. It's as if he is saying, From north to south, from top to bottom, all of the land mourns. God is ushering out, vocalizing, roaring a message of judgment that will include all of the land from top to bottom. Now it says Carmel withers. 
Now, if Carmel withers, everybody goes, uh-oh. Because Carmel is a promontory point out, by the, out on the Mediterranean Sea, on the western seaboard in northern Israel. It's lush. To this day, it's lush. Forests abound. Uh, vineyards grow. Figs grow. It's a high-yield crop-producing area. It's lush. And even if there is a famine and a drought in most of the rest of the land, not in Carmel. So if Carmel withers, uh-oh. It means the rest of the country is in for severe judgment. Verse 3 begins a series of judgments on these cities. And and now picture the bullseye. He's going to start from way out and then work his way all the way to the center. He begins north. He goes up to Syria, to Damascus. Now notice a little phrase. You're going to hear it and see it repeated in this chapter. The Lord says, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. You're going to read that phrase a lot. For three transgressions and for four. It's going to be throughout the whole chapter one and chapter two. It's a little formula. Don't think of it arithmetically, like arithmetic. Think of it idiomatically. It's a, it's a saying. It's like saying, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. You've done it one too many times. Or enough is enough. It's just a simple Hebraism that is axiomatic of of saying that. So for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Oh, by the way, let's just stop here and ask this question, because you better get an answer to it. It comes up a lot in the Old Testament. You notice that there's a, a lot of scripture on the topic of God's judgment in the Old and in the New Testament. Why? Because God's judgment is based upon God's character. God is uniquely, ultimately, other than we are. He is holy. Holy. Separate. High and lifted up. Above the earth. Above earthlings. Perfect. And the best word that sums it up biblically is God is holy. So when holy God requires a response from unholy people... And unholy people respond adversely to holy God. God reserves the right to judge unholy man for their unholy response to holy God. God reserves that right. It's part of the justice of God. And if there is a God who is not just, then he's not true to his character and that of holiness, then he can't be loving. For God to be loving, God has to be just. People say, I don't like the judgment of God. I I want the love of God. They're one and the same. They're based on the same character and nature. Just like a parent can't be a good, loving parent unless he's a just or she's a just parent. So that's important because we read about the judgment of God throughout the Old Testament. God is roaring in judgment against Damascus. I will not turn away its punishment. Here's why. Because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. 
But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which will devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. These are rulers of Syria. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Aven, that is the modern-day Beka Valley, still there. And the one who holds the scepter of Beth Eden. The people of Syria shall go captive to Ker, says the Lord. Probably the book of Amos isn't your favorite bedtime reading because of things like this. We read it and go, I have no idea what he just said. Well, it's localized. We, we know that Damascus is just north of Israel. Up in Syria. And even today, modern-day Syria. Did you know that Damascus is probably the oldest city in the world? Still in existence? At least that's what it claims. Now, there's about three or four cities that claim that, but I think I believe that about Damascus. Because Damascus goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. You may recall that Abraham had a servant named Eleazar of Damascus. That's how far back it goes to the patriarchal age. So it's an old city. And as the capital of Syria has been a long time enemy of Israel. And here we are in the year 2006, almost 2007, And Damascus is still an enemy of Israel. Funding, training, and deploying the Hezbollah to take over Lebanon and use Lebanon as a staging platform to attack Israel. Well, back in those days, it was really bad. still bad today, but it was so bad that, if you look in verse 3, because they've threshed Gilead with implements of iron. That is, the big threshing sledges that they would thresh the the grain with. They would mutilate Jewish people before, uh, when they were in a in a stupor or they'd been beaten up, they'd place them in front of the threshing sledge. It's not easy to say threshing sledge, and push that baby forward, and the the metal tips would rip the flesh of those people until dead. So they were terrorists. They were intent not just on killing, but on mutilating. God says, I take note of that. I remember that. And so he says, the people of Syria will go captive to Ker. You know what that means? That already happened. There was an Assyrian king. Remember, there's a difference between Syria, Damascus, and Assyria, that huge Aramean empire. One of the kings of Assyria named Tiglath-Pilesar was asked by Israel for help because Syria, during this time, was doing this kind of stuff. Help us. We'll pay you. We'll do anything. Now, little did they know that Assyria would eventually take them captive, but... During this time, it was fulfilled. Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians came in and destroyed Damascus and took those who had survived away to their then-time capital of Kir. So it was fulfilled, as the prophet said. Let's go on to the next city. Now we go all the way down south. 
For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, think of the Gaza Strip today, I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them to Edom, but I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, which will devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, and I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. We've moved from north of Israel to southwest of Israel, where at that time there was a strip of real estate 50 miles long, 15 miles wide, that formed the Gaza Strip. Now today it's about 27 miles long and 7 to 12 miles wide. So it's a little bit smaller than then, but you get the idea. The Philistines had settled, originating in Crete, being very aggressive in their momentum across the Mediterranean countries, and settled on the southwest coast of Israel. And the Philistines were the ones that hounded and distressed Israel during the time of the judges. And during the reign of King David. There were five cities of the Philistines that are mentioned in the Bible. Five principal cities along that little strip. And only four of them are mentioned in our text. There was Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Gaza, and Ekron. All of them are mentioned in our text except one, and that is Gath. Why? Because David invaded Gath, and King Uzziah, mentioned in verse 1, destroyed Gath by the time this prophecy went out. So four are left, and thus four are mentioned. And what is their sin? God says, because they took captive the whole captivity. Their sin was an expatriation. That is, they took the people of Israel and they sold them as slaves to a neighboring country, east of the Dead Sea, the king of Edom. One incident that some Bible historians point out to is that when Sennacherib, another Assyrian guy, came in and attacked Judah, that the, the people of Judah, the Jews, fled to wherever they could find refuge. And many of them fled into the Philistine country, hoping that they would find some kind of comfort, some kind of refuge. Just take care of us. The people of Philistia took these refugees and sold them for money as slaves to Edom. God says, I take note of that. I remember that. And so here they're placed under the judgment of God. By the way, the term Palestinian comes from the word Philistine. Philistines weren't Israelites. They came in and they tried to conquer a portion of God's territory. They were eventually removed. There are no Philistines today. They don't exist. But when Hadrian in 135 A.D. took over Jerusalem and dedicated the temple to Zeus and renamed the city and called it Aelia Capitolina. He renamed the whole region Ur-Philistia, land of the Philistines. He wanted to make it a slur, a slam. You're not Jews. You're not God's people. You're not Israelites. You're Palestinians, Philistines. 
That's where the term comes from. So back then, at this time, this judgment was upon Philistia, here called Gaza. Now verse 9, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not turn away its punishment. So we started north, east, northeast, which is Damascus. We went down southwest. Now he goes up to Tyre, which is northwest on the seacoast, above modern-day Beirut, the city of Tyre. I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send fire, that is the fire of war, upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. The city of Tyre had been established by a group known as the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were sea people, very aggressive, and they were the best fighters on boats of the ancient world. They were world-renowned for their navy. They were so aggressive that they took over Mediterranean ports. They went as far west as southern Spain, the area called Tarshish, where Jonah fled from the Lord. They brought tin from the land of tin to the Middle East, the land of tin, Britannia, Britain. And they took over northern Africa, Carthage. So these guys were very aggressive sea people. And they settled up in Tyre. There was a long-standing brotherhood that is mentioned here, an alliance. It started in the days of King David, when King David of Jerusalem and King Hiram of Tyre became close and developed a trade. And David said, tell you what, Hiram, we've got stuff that you guys don't have. You've got stuff that we guys don't have. We have figs, we have olives, we have wheat. You haven't grown any. You haven't grown much up there in the Becca Valley. So we will give you what we have in terms of our produce if you will ship down huge planks, logs of wood, cedar wood from your cedars in Lebanon, and give them to me to build my temple. So David had this long-standing relationship with Hiram. Hiram also gave workers to help build the temple of God under King Solomon, and there was this brotherhood. Never once is it recorded that Israel ever attacked, ever made war against Tyre. And during Hiram, there was that brotherhood, that alliance, so vice versa, never a war. But now there was a war. Now they attacked. Now they disregarded their brothers down south. They wanted Israel out of the picture. So God says, for three transgressions and for four, you didn't remember the brotherhood, I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. It rhymes. Which will devour its palaces. You want to hear a fascinating story? Good. (laughs) When the Babylonians took over the world, one of the places they decided to take over was Tyre. In order to take it over, and there was a lot of resistance because it was right on the seacoast, they had built massive walls, and so the only way the Babylonians could decimate it was to lob fiery missiles over into Tyre. It was destroyed by fire from over the walls, like it is predicted. But this isn't the only place 
in the Old Testament where it is predicted that Tyre would fall under the judgment of God. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 23 also predicts it. The prophet Ezekiel also predicts it. And he makes an interesting prediction that the city of Tyre would be scraped. It would be totally flattened down to the dust, totally destroyed. The Babylonians did not totally destroy it. But I'd like you to... Great, I closed my Bible. Uh, Turn with me over uh, to Ezekiel chapter 26 for just a moment. So go backwards to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 26. It came to pass in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, Aha! It's a saying of, You're vulnerable, I can get you. She is broken, who was the gateway of, of the peoples. Now she is turned over to me, I shall be filled, she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will cause many nations to come up against you as the sea causes its waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. After the Babylonians invaded and defeated Tyre, Eventually they left, and eventually the people of Tyre decided to rebuild, but they were smart. They knew that they would be vulnerable to another attack. Now these were Phoenicians. So what they did is there was a little area right off the coast, a little island. They moved a half a mile from the coast out to sea, a half a mile, on this little island and rebuilt the city of Tyre with a wall around it on this little island. Now they were invincible. Now if anybody comes by land, they'll see the city out at sea. They'll have to get in boats. And the Phoenicians were masters at fighting by ship. Years passed. Still an unfulfilled prophecy. Over in the area of Greece, of Macedonia, there was a leader by the name of Philip. Philip of Macedon. He had a son who thought he was really great. His name was Alexander. He became Alexander the Great. But when he was a kid, his dad thought, there's no hope for Alexander. Because Alexander wasn't warlike. He wasn't a warrior. He was a thinker. He was a bookworm. And his dad actually thought, my little kid Alex, he'll never amount to anything. He's really not very great. So I'm going to make him great. He hired a private tutor by the name of Aristotle to tutor young Alex in the ways of the world. And Alex grew and he wisened. When he was 19 years of age, his dad, Philip, died. And a rage built up in young Alex, an anger, wanting to avenge his father. So he manned an army, not very large, but very swift. And from Macedon, he quickly moved from the west eastward, 
conquering as many people as he could. He came to the city of Tyre. Wanting to avenge, really, the Assyrians who had killed his father, he he goes toward Tyre and he sees that little island out in the middle of the sea. He asks for a simple request. I need supplies. All I want is some supplies. I'll buy them from you so I can take over the world. They said, no way, Jose. Now, I don't know if they actually said that, but they, they denied his request. So he decided to destroy Tyre. Problem. He knew that they were great in the sea. He wasn't going to engage in a battle by boat. So he took the remains of the first city of Tyre, almost totally destroyed, but not completely destroyed by the Babylonians, and he took all of the stones and he built a a causeway, a jetty, from the land to the island. And the only way he could get enough material was to literally scrape the rocks of every existing shard of pottery and stone to give enough material to build this causeway out to the sea. And he scraped it and destroyed it and annihilated that little island city off the coast, destroying it utterly, as God had predicted. It's fascinating what you see in the Scripture. So it was totally fulfilled, and there are several. By the way, he killed several of them. 20,000 Philip uh, uh, Alexander crucified, and another 30,000 he sold as slaves. So anyway, wiped it out. God predicted it. Now back to famous Amos. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom... And for four, I will not turn away its punishment. So you see what he's doing now. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre. Now he goes east, southeast, to the nation of Edom. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, his anger tore perpetually. And he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Taman, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. Now, Edom, you know about Edom, right? Edom was a group of people that were descendants of a guy by the name of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Esau was given the right of the firstborn. He didn't want it. He didn't want the blessing. He wasn't a spiritual man. He was an entrepreneur. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about his soul. He didn't care about spiritual things. In fact, he was so shallow, he said, Tell you what, bro, he said to Jacob, you give me a bowl of that soup, because you're such a great cook. You cook like Emeril on television. You give me a good uh, a bowl of that hot red pottage, and I'll sell you my birthright. That's how little he cared about spiritual matters. Jacob said, Deal. And he got the birthright. The descendants were known as the Edomites. They settled east, southeast of the Dead Sea. And their principal city is an area called Petra, Bozra, or Petra, this rock city. Folks, if you get the hankering, you can still visit the capital city of Petra, which became the stronghold of the Nabataean Empire. You can still see it today. In fact, remember Indiana Jones? And what was the last film? Search for the Holy Grail, something like that. What was it called? What, what was it? 
Last crusade. I'm sorry, I just forgot, so I wanted to remember. Remember the scene when they go through that narrow valley and then they come and they see this huge palace carved out of rock? That's Petra. And there is no grail there, by the way. And there's no knight guarding it. I don't even know if you remember the movie. Anyway. They're under the judgment. Verse 13, For three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the woman with child in Gilead that they might enlarge their territory. This is a common act of war, even into the Crusades. When people would take over areas, they were very indiscriminate about who they would kill. They'd kill men, they'd kill women, they'd kill pregnant women, and often with the slice of their sword would take out the woman and the child with one blow. And it's, it's an act of terrorism. In fact, it's as recent as Nazi Germany. The idea of extermination to take over land, killing men, women, and children, extermination to take over territory, is a Nazi doctrine called the Liebenstrom, where they would be very indiscriminate, as we all know. History proves in their killing to get whatever they wanted. So the judgment is upon Ammon. Again, this is also east of the Dead Sea. Verse 14, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah. Rabbah is modern-day Amman, Jordan, and devour its palaces amid the shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes together, says the Lord. Now, five years after Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, five years later, 581 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who took over Jerusalem, also destroyed this territory. Eventually, as God predicted, they would be destroyed. Now, in chapter 1, you've seen a theme, have you not? It's the kind of theme that would make all the crowd that famous Amos was preaching to pretty excited. Boy, it's great to be in Israel. It's great to be God's chosen people, because all of those who have ever gone against us, they're in trouble. That's the theme so far, is that God judges the nations around Israel based upon their treatment of Israel. Now, I bring that up and I underscore it because it shows up again in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about an end-time judgment that will occur after His second coming toward the earth, to the earth. He will judge the nations. The nations will be gathered in a place and God will judge them based upon their treatment of what Jesus calls my brethren, sheeps and goats, and how they treated my brethren. And as much as you have done it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. And the context shows that God will again judge the nations based upon their treatment of the Jews during the tribulation period. You know what happens in the tribulation period. There's a meathead by the name of the Antichrist who makes it very difficult for the Jewish nation and persecutes them all the way as they flee toward Petra. History repeats itself. And because of the anti-Semitism 
of the Jewish nation, 144,000 of them, it will be almost impossible to survive unless good or godly people from Gentile nations help them. And some will. Because of that, they will be rewarded at that judgment in the end times. Now in chapter 2. So you, you can imagine. Let's see how much time we got. Ah, enough time. So far the crowd's going, I like Amos. He's a great preacher, man. I love the theme of his message. So far, so good. Thus says the Lord, chapter 2, verse 1, For three transgressions of Moab and for four. I will not turn away its punishment. Again, we're dealing with those areas east of the Dead Sea, but we're going now back a little bit north. So can you see what he's doing? He's drawing this, this circle around Israel, but soon it'll, it'll narrow and become a bullseye. I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime, but I will send a fire upon Moab and it will devour the palaces of Kiriath. The Moabites along with the Ammonites, were descendants of a very infamous character, the nephew of Abraham called Lot. And they settled this area. The Moabites were pagan worshipers. They worshipped the god called Chemosh, and they were very cruel in their worship. They would often take their babies and offer a child, a baby, as a sacrifice to their gods. They were cruel in their worship, And there were several instances where they were cruel after death, desecrating corpses. And one of the corpses was the king of Edom. Now it's mentioned in 2 Chronicles. I forget exactly which chapter, but now I've given you food for thought. You'll go home tonight and read all of 2 Chronicles until you get it. And um, he killed the king of Edom's son, who was going to be the next in line for the king. So thus he killed the next king of Edom. And uh, it was desecrated his corpse. So God says, I take note of that. I remember that. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all of its princes with him, says the Lord. So, so far the crowd is, you know, he's won the crowd. They love his preaching. But they're about to squirm. Because he's spoken about all of these other nations... And I can hear all the the Israelites in Bethel. Amen. Amen. Let's come back next Sabbath and hear this guy. He's good. He tells us what we want to hear. But now he's going to get a little too close for comfort. He's going to now speak about God's judgment on their neighbor Judah, also Jewish people, also Israelites technically, those two southern tribes. Now that this is going to make him squirm a little bit. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they have despised the law of the Lord. Just about now, they're beginning to connect the dots. The other nations were judged not because they transgressed the law of the Lord. They were pagans. They had no law of the Lord. They didn't care about the Lord God, Yahweh. They had their own false gods. They were run-of-the-mill, garden-variety pagans. And the Israelites could understand why God would judge them because, hey, they've treated us poorly. But now God's speaking about Judah and how Judah transgressed the law of God. You see, God held the other nations accountable for their sin against general revelation. 
God's holding these guys accountable for their sin against special revelation, His Word. And they've got to be thinking about now as they're connecting the dots, wait, 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 wait a minute. That, that's the place where the temple was and is. That's the center of worship. If Judah is not going to escape God's judgment, where does that leave us? Which is a good question. They should be thinking that about now because they've despised the law of the Lord and have not kept His commandments. Notice this. Their lies lead them astray. Lies which their father followed. But I will send fire upon Judah and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem. The term lies refers to idols. I want you to note that. Their lies lead them astray. Lies which their fathers have followed. What does that mean? The lie is that they can follow any God they want. The lie is they can craft and carve a statue to represent God, even though that limits the essential character and nature of God. The lie is that, well, we can kind of do whatever we want and make up our own worship system. That's a lie. That's idolatry. That's the worst of all sins. That's why the first commandment is, I am the Lord thy God, you will have no other gods before me. And to worship anything, anyone else, or to worship God in an unprescribed manner is, a, is idolatry. It's a lie. Romans chapter 1, it tells us, they worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Also in the book of 2 Thessalonians, God will send them a strong delusion that they will believe the lie. What is he speaking about? He's speaking as a prophecy of what will happen in the great tribulation when God will send people a blinding delusion and they will worship a statue of the Antichrist that is called God. That's the lie. The ultimate lie is idolatry. Their lies lead them astray. Lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah and devour all the palaces of Jerusalem. Can you picture the crowd now? They're kind of dancing a little bit. They're kind of nervously pressing down on their knees. and Their lips are quivering. Now look at what he does. Bullseye. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. You see what he's done? He's gone all around Israel, even to their neighbor, southern Judah, and bullseyes on the very nation that is his audience. As if to say, God's going to judge you too. Because you, along with Judah, should have known better. You had the laws. You had the tabernacle. You had the temple. You had the priesthood. You had all the revelation to keep you holy, and you didn't do it. Because they sell the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in a pledge, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. It sort of reminds me of the story of the preacher who was preaching one day at church on a Sunday. He was a visiting preacher. And he started out speaking about the sin of alcoholism. And one righteous 
older gal in the church said, I like this preacher. It's about time somebody preaches against these sins like alcoholism. I like him. His second point was the sin of tobacco. And again, she said, yeah, he's got guts. Nobody else speaks about these vices. I like this guy. He's a good preacher. Then he moved from alcohol and tobacco to gossip. This gal got nervous. Her face turned red and she turned to her neighbor and said, now he's left preaching and he's gone to meddling. (laughs) He touched the very thing she was guilty of. And you'll notice with Israel, it's not one sin. There's a whole list of them. It's like my friend's son who heard, guilty as charged, guilty as charged, guilty as charged. And the indictment came down. Look, they, they sell the righteous for silver, a poor for a pair of sandals. They pan after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. Sin number one, oppression of the poor. And they pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl. Adultery, idolatry, part of that pagan worship system. To defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in a pledge. Again, oppression. Remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, if there was a guy who was poor and he borrowed money from you and he gave you his his outer garment as a pledge uh, for the money that he borrowed, you could not keep that pledge longer than a day. You had to give it to him at night because that was his only garment. He'd freeze to death. Or at least he'd get very cold trying to sleep without his blanket. So you'd give that pledge back to him because he was poor. You take care of him. And drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. So drunkenness. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Now God's going to say, look, this is what they've done in spite of all that I've done for them. Now he gives them a little quick history lesson. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. He was as strong as the oaks. Now, the Amorite nation was probably the most powerful of all of the Canaanite nations when Moses and the children of Israel were going to take over the land. In fact, you remember the two spies that came and spied out the land, Joshua and Caleb, along with the other ten. They came with a bad report. The other two came with a good report. But they all noticed the same thing. There were giants in the land. The Amorite, it was a big race. God says, look, I took care of those big giants. Still, you don't believe me. Here's what's sad. Here's what's sad. All the other nations are judged. Then Judah, bullseye on Israel. Because Israel and Judah, they're worst of all. They've sunk to the level of the other nations. They were called to be the light of the world. They were called to raise other nations up by their example to a godly level. But instead, they've sunk down to their level. That's what worldliness. Godliness is where you, by your lifestyle, you live singularly before God and you have that ability to raise other up to a higher level. Worldliness is where you start at a high level and you sink down to the level of the world around you. Jesus said, when the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot by men. They were worse because they had the prophets. They had God's revelation. 
They sunk to that level. You know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. A thermometer reads what's going on around it. Whatever temperature is on around it, thermometer goes up or down. A thermostat regulates the temperature. Christian, you and I are called to be thermostats, not thermometers. Well, let's do what everybody thinks we ought to do. Forget it what everybody thinks we do or wants us to do. Let's do what God wants us to do. Let's hear His voice. The world is unholy. Let's be holy. Let's live singular, unique lives following, panting after Him. Not sinking to the level, well, the world does it. Well, big deal. But Lord, how would you have me to live? It was also I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, led you the forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. So I sent you preachers as well as good examples. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink, and you commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. This is really bad. Not only did they sink to the level of the world, the Nazarites who took a vow that they couldn't have any alcohol, there were people saying, Oh, come on, bro, you got the liberty. You can do whatever you want. Go ahead and have a drink. You know what I've learned? If you have liberty in a certain area, whether it's music you listen to, or food that you eat, or days of the week you worship on, but there's a weaker brother around you who doesn't have the liberty, don't try to talk them into doing what you do. Because the Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. When it comes to days of the week to worship, Paul said, let each one be persuaded in his own mind. Don't you try to persuade somebody. Go ahead, bro. Have a drink, man. We're getting the Nazarites drunk. That's pretty low. And telling the prophets, we don't want to hear it. Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand. Who handles the bow, the swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. You and I live in a different day. We live in the age of grace. We live in a day of grace. God is heaping mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace. But if you reject God's mercy and God's grace, you are inviting the judge who will say guilty as charged. So, how do you escape the judgment? Well, you you either take it upon yourself and you're guilty as charged for all eternity, or you place it all upon Jesus Christ who died on the cross for every transgression and all of our judgment. And let that be a once and for all act upon Him where you commit your life to follow Him and He cleanses you from all of your sin. Boy, Amos is pretty bold, don't you think? And don't you think we need more people like famous Amos today? Not cookie makers, but sheep breeders turned preachers. People who will boldly speak and boldly go where no man has gone before. 
In the Chinese language, I understand that there is an interesting word called crisis. We call it crisis. In Chinese, our word crisis is represented by two Chinese characters, each which has a different meaning, but when combined, forms an interesting definition. The first character means dangerous. The second character means opportunity. So they translate crisis a dangerous opportunity. I define that as evangelism, a dangerous opportunity. For this prophet Amos, it was a dangerous but opportunity to give this message. You've got the same opportunity tomorrow at work in your neighborhood to say, hey, let me talk to you about spiritual matters. Let me talk to you about Jesus Christ. Great opportunity. Dangerous, but a great opportunity. May God give us all strength to be bold representatives. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.